Welcome to Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond. We are so glad you could join us today. The Crosstalk podcast is in pursuit of growing in our understanding of the gospel and discovering what it means to transfer to the next generation. And now, here are your hosts, Charles and Daniel. We hope you're having a good midweek. Uh, we are on our very last episode, and I genuinely mean that. <laughs> we're on our very last episode Only on the church. Me. And we landed the plane, or we're landing the plane on the ground. So we're not just talking about landing the plane, but we're actually... Uh, and turning the engine off. Yes. And uh, so anyway, we want to leave you with a discussion on the modern church. Um so much could be said about this, and you'll see probably – we'll probably go over. I just know we will today on this one. But uh, I do think um, w- what are the things that have brought us to where we are over the last 100 years or so? And some of these things will move from the 19th century and the 20th century that we're talking about. But I think as we know the church in the last 100 years, how to develop and where did we come from? So we want to talk about the modern church. Um, and I think it's good also to remind our listeners right now that we're going to be taking a break after this week. So next week is Passion for Christ Summit, and it's a very busy time for us. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a break. And so then November the 9th, we will return, Lord willing, uh, with new episodes before we head into the holiday season. Um, but today we're going to wrap up our series that we've been doing since spring, really, or before spring of this year on the church, and we're going to talk about the modern church. And just let's jump in right now. What is, or I should say, the one thing we want to talk about is dispensationalism. And what is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is a an evangelical <coughs> phenomenon, has become, because it is, you, we have to talk about it if we're going to talk about the modern church, because it has... So um, permeated modern evangelicalism. It is still premillennial dispensationalism is the term that's often used. They're used together. And that's the primary view still, I guess, in evangelicalism of eschatology of last things. But dispensationalism came out of the context of uh, Adventism. Um, that's interesting. It's yeah. like we're kind of coming Well, you know, there was this uh, millennialism, this emphasis on the second coming, and then as, as the 20th century approached, and and there was a lot of um, information spreading about wars and rumors of wars, and then you had the right. First World War. But anyway, um, a fellow by the name of J.N. Darby, who was of the Plymouth Brethren, and he, you know, another fellow who was of the Plymouth Brethren was um, George Mueller, but Darby was meditating on um, – the issue, the biblical issue that um, the church is seated in the heavenlies, blessed with every heavenly blessing in spiritual places. And he, out of that meditation, came this view that the church was primarily a, a heavenly people and Israel was primarily an earthly people. And he uh, took, he determined that God has an earthly people and a heavenly people. And it, so Darby got that going. Now, he, of course, died. And later, the, th- the one thing that got dispensationalism so popular was the Schofield Reference Bible. There were other authors, but Schofield's Reference Bible basically put it in, their, in the hands of countless evangelicals. Right. You even have one, by the way. I do. Well, I've used it for years. <laughs> I still use it. Uh, I, use the, I use it because I know where everything is, but... 
So anyway, that's how it developed. Then the certain distinctives came out. One was the very fact, uh, and the strongest thing was the strong dichotomy between Israel and the church, and that God has a different plan for Israel and the church, and um, uh, that prophecy deals with earthly things. This is one of the things that came out of his meditation. Prophecy right. deals primarily with earthly things. It doesn't deal with heavenly things. And so um, – uh, there was also this development of seven dispensations. People who are familiar with dispensationalism will know what those are. Uh, the other thing, particular thing that came out, and I'm not going to go over everything, but was this idea that God's main plan was with Israel, and that when Jesus came, he offered himself to Israel as king. The problem was that they rejected him, so now God does something different, and in a parenthetical parenthetical way, in a parenthesis, that uh, raises up the church as his heavenly people. So it's almost like he has a plan A and a plan B? That Yeah, that's it's often called that, yeah. But, yeah. but then I guess plan A comes back full circle because now, in the end, Israel will be brought back. Right, when we get to the end of the church age, the church dispensation, then uh, Christ comes back, the rapture happens, the church is taken out, and now God deals with Israel. In particular, there's a period of tribulation, then there's the thousand-year reign. By the way, the, a literal thousand-year reign is not just uh, a dispensational idea. There are historical premillennialists who believe in many ways like amillennialists, but they, they do believe in a literal right. reign of Christ. Yeah, Almola would be one they of those. They just don't believe in some of the more yeah. particular aspects of dispensationalism. Yeah. So those are some of the distinctives. One of the distinctives that when that, we move then into the deficiencies of dispensationalism, and one of those deficiencies in early dispensationalism was why some people refer to it as heresy. And of course, it is heresy if you hold to two different kinds of salvation, a different one in the old than there is in the new, that there's a salvation and more works involved, whereas in the New Testament, it's salvation of grace. So that was Part of old dispensationalism, you'll find few, if any, dispensationalists who hold to that now. But so, so it's interesting you bring, or we're talking about this issue of dispensationalism. Which I will add this: this is going to lead us all to the very end of what we're going to talk about. So we're building, kind of a, uh, a building here. Right. Where there's building blocks upon one another. But you have people that we've talked about here on Crosstalk, which would be John MacArthur and others. Right. Evangelical, modern evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, David Jeremiah would be in that. Correct, that are dispensational. So we've kind of spoken in a negative tone, but obviously we speak in a positive light of these men. So what – how do we reconcile that? Well – some of the, is there a difference? Gonna, you know what I'm saying? Is there well, right? Well, we're going to move into the deficiencies, and what's happened is that in neo dispensationalism or new dispensationalism, men like John MacArthur have, and, and new dispensationalism has basically laid aside many of those distinctives, so that the primary distinctive of neo dispensationalism is a dichotomy between a difference in the church in Israel, that God has a particular plan for Israel at the end of the age, and that that's going to result in a millennial kingdom right. and that sort of thing. Now, I'll go over those deficiencies. I want to come back to MacArthur because uh, one of the things was just a hermeneutical problem, you know, a, a failure to see certain um, uh, biblical statements in the light of sound 
biblical principles of interpretation. So, uh, I mean, when Scripture would say plainly that something is this way, but it didn't fit in the system. So what dispensationalism tends to do is interpret certain things in Scripture by its system and not the other way around. The uh, an ignorant, ignoring of something like Ephesians that talks about the the uh, uh, two peoples becoming one, and there's right. one people, not two. Um, the um, uh, the differences in salvation. Now, uh, ironically, back when I first became a pastor, I had a book by John MacArthur entitled Kingdom Living Here and Now. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I preached through the book of Revelation as a young pastor, and my dad came to hear. My dad had raised me in dispensational uh, teaching, and we had read those books together and had right. a lot of discussions about it. And when I when I preached the, the through the Sermon on the Mount, my dad called my hand on that and said, "You know, that's kingdom, that's kingdom <laughs> ground there." And the the belief was in dispensationalism yeah, yeah. that that those things, especially Matthew, was was kingdom ground, and that they didn't have strict application to the church. There was some application, but not strict application. Uh, MacArthur shot that to pieces with his kingdom living here and now so so uh, so you answer my question i mean all i'm saying is is that there are men who hold to dispensational viewpoints but they are not of what we're talking about necessarily actually most of those old distinctives have gone by the wayside Hmm. and and we have even men who hold to reformed view of soteriology and reformed view of other things who still hold to the distinctives between church and israel well my father-in-law is a dispensationalist and we have these discussions from time to time and he he even says he has warned I guess I don't. Maybe that's not a good choice of words, but he has started to embrace a little bit of not amillennialism because he's he's dispensational, but that some of the ideas of the covenant yeah. way of thinking and obviously the gospel that all flows into that he has taken on or has begun to think through. Well, this is no slight on Phil because Phil's a dear friend and brother, but I will say there's only one place I can go. <laughs> <laughs> it's no slight on John MacArthur. I mean, John MacArthur is ten times smarter than but me. Look he, at that. I mean, but it was funny because my father-in-law was saying that at a conference, it may have been the most recent Shepherds Conference, is that MacArthur, I can't, I'd have to find it to quote him word for word, but mm-hmm. kind of made a comment along those lines. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. And if, our fa- if my father-in-law is listening, he'll probably give me a phone call after this. So. <laughs> 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 I might get a text. Yeah, right. Anyway, that, the point here is not to belabor our differences, but uh, I just didn't uh, want people to misunderstand that they are good and godly men and women. Oh, for sure. Who yeah, are? I mean, uh, we shouldn't have to say that, but yeah, theologically sound. And who don't hold to the old right. dispensationalism of Darby and Schofield and yep. Larkin and Sice and and others who wrote these very um, well. Uh, uh, Let's just face it. They basically diminished the sovereignty of God and who yeah. he is. And my wife and I were talking about this this morning, strangely enough, and I, I just uh, – uh, just some hermeneutical issues and other things that moved me in another direction. But yeah. We won't we, – we can move on. We don't have much time. Yeah, right. So we've got to finish. Uh, but anyway, we've talked about dis- dispensationalism. Now we're going to move or transition into liberalism um, slash modernism. And though this really doesn't have anything to do necessarily with dispensationalism, no. it's going to lead us to our last point where everything will be tied together. So liberalism, what is it or what is it not? Well, liberalism um, is, an 18th, is a 19th century phenomenon 
uh, not only that, but it, you know, when you have the Renaissance coming out of the Reformation, you have the Renaissance and rationalism, rationalistic thought, then you had these influences upon liberalism. Rationalism influenced liberalist, liberal thought, humanism, intellectualism, so that um, now theology is being influenced by <clears throat> these these ways of thinking, these um, 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 movements, if you want right. to call them that, they have they have a they have an influence upon theology and upon theological schools. So there, that was the influences. But then you have uh, certain assumptions that go with liberal thinking. One is an anti-supernatural assumption that basically uh, the loss of a belief in miracles that there are natural explanations for so these. So scientific things. is what you're trying to say. Yeah. yeah so. Um, Scripture must agree with and submit to science and to rational thought. Man becomes the um, the Arbiter expert of truth. Yeah. yeah, he he he. Man figures out what scripture can be right, where it can be right, where it can be wrong, and so it makes certain assumptions, anti supernatural, anti biblical assumptions, and then it, then we see as a result of that. Now we get this into the schools, this thinking into the schools. And by the way, during that time, we have men like Darwin, who came up with the origin of the species and the evolutionary hypothesis. Marx, who applied um, rationalism and unbiblical thinking to politics. Hegel, to philosophy. We have this going on. And that having some influence upon the intellectual community, <clears throat> the theological community. How can we reconcile these? And which leads to some consequences that are destructive. One is that the institutions of higher learning become places where liberal theological thought now is taking control. Men who are studying for ministry and studying to teach others are taken with this new intellectualism, this liberalism, this modernism. The uh, uh, so so when you affect educational institutions, you affect. The church, because the church is going to be affected by those men that come out of those institutions. Well, let me ask you this: This is not off topic, but I think it it really puts in perspective historically what we're talking about. So, obviously, you have the nineteenth century and liberalism develops. You move into the twentieth century. You have World War One, and then you have a man called Hitler, who is from Germany, which is where we can say liberalism began to really take root and have its hold was in, in Germany. What can we say about that historical event was affected by liberalism? Because if you think about it, you had the church in, in Germany, which kind of went along in, some, in many ways. Not everyone. Uh, we have others who, who stood up for the faith. But went along with what Hitler was doing. So how did this liberal theological thought affect the lack of resistance to someone like Hitler. Well, in the Tübingen School, which was a primary place in Germany where this liberal thought began, now you have little resistant biblical resistance to evil because mm. we've rationalized certain views of man like the fallenness of man and mm. the uh, the need for a savior. Now you have someone like Nietzsche who comes along with God is dead and with uh, like the Superman mentality that there's a superior race, right. well, that fit right into Hitler. So, so the, it's it's kind of like where we are today because our theological 
base, our Christian base has been sort of eradicated in our society. We're open to who knows what. Uh, and that happened with Hitler. I mean, he he was bitter and angry over how Germany had been uh, abused and misused and mistreated. And he saw the German people and Germans as a superior race. And he fed that into them, and they bought into it. The church was weak because of its theological liberalism. It had little resistance, with the exception of a few, like uh, Bonhoeffer who himself right. was not a conservative, but nevertheless, who stood for what was right and good. The church was weak, and, and because it was theologically weak, it didn't have the, the strength, the power to stand against such a thing. I think that's an indictment upon us as well. When I think about the church right now, and I think of all that's going on in Western civilization, I would say that we've done a very bad job. We've done a good job sometimes, but we've done a very bad job of training our young people to think correctly. And so we're going to reap uh, kind of a new liberalism, if you will. Um, it's not the same. I, I know it's not the same. But th- this this idea that if we're not willing to think biblically about things, then we will be overrun by those who are not thinking biblically about things. Right. If we're not – Yeah. I, th- I think we'll see the effects of that, yeah, for sure. Which, which leads us to what we've talked about in the past is, is that Christ and who he is yes. and his truth must be our mainstay. That's why we are studying church history, and we look at the, 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 the deficiencies of the past, but also the joys of, of things of how God worked, and we're seeing that again even in, in the modern times it should cause us to rejoice and see that God is at work, and, and He's puts, not done. It reminds us of the importance of the central centrality of Christ in the Scriptures, yeah. and it does. One of the one other thing that came out of that was something called neo orthodoxy. Some people would look at neo orthodoxy and say, "Oh, it's just." warmed over liberalism. Well, that's not exactly true because what neo-orthodoxy said was no liberalism's gone too far, uh, that God is transcendent, man is sinful, and man is in need of a Savior. But it also said that the scriptures themselves were uh, were not what we would call objective and um, and that they believed in a more personal encounter with God that apart from scripture. So it, <clears throat> it still undermined the authority of scripture. So you would say that's even a consequence as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the next thing we go into is going to be another consequence. So we talked about dispensationalism. We've talked about liberalism. I think the next thing here is going to kind of wrap it together as we see an outcome of both. One is, you know, this dispensational theological wrong way of looking at how God works the other is a complete leaving of the scriptures. Right. There's nothing really biblical about it at all. And right. now we have what's called fundamentalism, which is trying to bring everything back to what we would call the fundamentals of the faith. So how did fundamentalism affect the last hundred years or where we're even at today? Yeah, fundamentalism originated fundamentalism, excuse me, originated in the early twentieth century as a reaction to theological liberalism. So you had men in the United States who went to European schools. They were they were uh, versed in liberal thought, theological liberal thought. They were bringing it back to schools here and back to churches here. And so you saw the decline of major uh, Protestant denominations, Methodism, Presbyterianism, others. Um, so you saw that decline. And now you have men like uh, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote the, the Fundamentals, 
but there was a development. They sit down, they think, they, what do we need to believe to be Christian? If we say we're Christian, what, what are the fundamentals? And they came up with um, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, and the historicity of the miracles, all of which have been rejected right. by liberalism and had not been fully regained by neo-orthodoxy. There was some discussion, should we include in that the deity of Christ? Of course, if you believe in the virgin birth, you would believe in the deity of Christ. And uh, um, should we include in that the necessity of a premillennial view of the return of Christ, um, that he would return and establish a millennial kingdom. That was discussed, but primarily these five fundamentals. Now, what happened was that that was a theological and intellectual and theological statement of what is fundamentally true of Christianity, what you must believe fundamentally to be a Christian. But things happened over time so that some of those folks who were very friendly to that kind of thought were also very friendly to a more outward expression of what it means to be a Christian. Well, now you're, you're starting to touch upon what I think would be the negative connotation to fundamentalism. I mean, most of the time when we use the word fundamental or a fundamentalist, you think of politically fundamental, you know, politically fundamentalist, yeah, uh, or uh, you think of a religious fundamentalist, you know. Right. And so I think it has a very strong negative connotation, which is probably not good, but it's where we're at. So I think that's what you're referring to. Well, what happened was that you had men like Bob Jones and um, uh, John R. Rice, others whose names I can't recall right now, but came out and basically to them – the church not only had to believe right, they had to look right, they had to act right. Well, we know, yes, we the must church be set needs apart. to yeah. act biblically. But that included things like not going to movies, uh, not smoking, not or drinking. You wear dresses, you don't wear, wear dresses, yeah, length of hair, clothes a certain of, way yeah. or certain kinds of clothes. And, and that got associated with fundamentalism so that basically that, that group – that persuasion sort of co-opted fundamentalism, and fundamentalism began to have a more negative uh, approach. And you might imagine—I mean, who, what, what person of the world wants the church to tell them how they tell them how to act? You right. know? And even still, if a church is conservative, it can be accused of that. Um, but so that the fundamentalism was kind of co-opted, which then led to a more a use of terms like conservatism and then finally evangelicalism. And evangelicalism now is the term that we use to express those who believe in an evangelical view of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, the doctrinal purity of the faith itself. Biblical orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've moved away from fundamentalism. Fundamentalism has become a pejorative term used by the world by me and others to associate Christians who believe the Bible with people like um, uh, fundamentalist Muslims and others. Right. So, so yeah, it, it has come to have that negative connotation. We prefer evangelicalism. But, um, you know, uh, what we're down to now is what is, what is the evangelical faith? And we still we still hold to those five fundamentals, right? You know, we still believe, and and that has affected modern evangelicalism. It has it has caused us to have to define what we believe and what it is to be an evangelical Christian. I'm going to go back to the people who 
really begin to focus on what you look like, not just the five fundamentals, but how does that look, you know, as you live your mm-hmm. life. A lot of these men, I think you you can think of like Bob Jones, mm-hmm. uh, there's some other guys out there, became very authoritative and a very strong-handed in right. how they led their organizations. Right. Um, there's others, uh, if you're not familiar with, people like Bill Gothard and an IBLP, very similar type of, of, of situation. So do you think that being founded upon the fundamentals but then leading to this way of look that it kind of fed the power struggle again? Yeah, I think what tends to develop is people who speak with authority – draw a following and because they speak with authority and they have a following then they believe in their own authority Mm. you know you see that you've seen that not just in fundamentalism per se but in charismaticism too to some degree and well i feel like it brings this back full circle to some of the things we were talking about last week in that how denominations developed and you have post-reformation or pre-reformation and post-reformation and if we had to go back to what it was like before the Reformation, before denominations, there was no one who could think for themselves. Mm-hmm. There was this absolute power. The, the church was the ultimate authority in the sense of, like, whether it's biblical or not, we're telling you how to live your life or telling how governments how to do things. I feel like the struggle is always there. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference in controlling people by telling them what they can and can't do and be a Christian and appealing to people on the basis of Scripture. When Scripture is – That's a good point. I I like how you put that. When Scripture is at the center and Christ is at the center, then our goal is to please Christ. And our goal is not to make people just like us or to fit a particular pattern that we say is either fundamentally or conservatively right. And uh, which which leads us then to this. All of these isms and all of these factions and – serve to do what? To cause us to think biblically and to look and think Christologically, to look to Christ. Are there things we can ask our brothers and sisters and say, is this something you want to do? Is this a direction you want to go? Certainly there is. Can we appeal to the consciences of our brothers and sisters based on certain things Scripture says? Certainly we can. But can we authoritatively tell them, um, you know, they can't go there or do that we just have to be careful of building that kind of an authority structure. I'm going to move into – I'm going to – with our remaining time here, I'm going to slide into another portion of what I would say is the last 20 or 30 years of, of, of church history, <laughs> very recent church history. Right. Um, seeker-friendly. Do you think that seeker-friendly, like in the 80s going into the 90s, was a reaction to fundamentalism? Well, I think if you think in terms of – if you look at the fundamentalism that evolved in this sense that – The negative you, aspect of it. Yeah, the more authoritative aspect, right. the more um, practical, practicing aspect of it. And you have a church telling people they can't do this, they can't go there, they must look like this. The world certainly reacts to that. The world will always react to the church if the church stands for truth. But I think when you came to the 70s, you had a desire to make the church relevant, Mm. to make it attractive, 
And so I think much of the rejection of that came from that. It doesn't, you're, you're I don't think it came so much from a theological basis as from a, a pragmatic basis. You're making my 20 or 30 years actually more like 40, 50 years. But <laughs> <laughs> well, <Sorry. laughs> I mean, 1970 was 52 years ago. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so 45 or 50 years ago, you, you have men who now want the church to, you know, to turn seeker-friendly. First of all, it, it implies that men will be seeking for God, which Scripture says men they do won't. not naturally seek for <laughs> right. God. But, you know, there are those out there we can attract if we are attractive, if we don't emphasize these things, but we have an openness. We just broaden the stake, so to speak, you know, right. the tent. And so I do think that pragmatism is in some ways a reaction to certain aspects of fundamentalism. It's – and – so we can still be conservative. We believe the Bible, right. but we don't. We don't want to offend people. We want them to feel at home in the church. Right. Just we take you just the way you are. You no, know, right. that sort of approach. So yes, it has affected. Yeah. So you have seeker friendly, and now in the last twenty years or so, and these are very loose because it's hard to nail them right. down. We're looking at what I would call recent history, so right. we're not very far removed from a lot of this. You have what's called the young, reformed, and restless. <laughs> you know. Or restless young and I, I, I may be getting that term wrong, but and and they're stereotypical, you know, plaid shirts, beards, drink my mm, microbreweries, yeah. go to coffee shops, play, you know, work on my my MacBook. That, uh, you have your iPhone; those are all yeah, stereotypes your and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which you have, by the way. You have one sitting right there on the desk. Oh, um, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but all that to say is, now you have a reaction to the seeker friendly. And I think it's a positive thing in the sense of we're wanting to be based upon the truth. Right. Again, going back to the fundamentals, if you will. Right. Uh, what does the Bible say and how does it guide our life? But it cannot be about being hip and cool. Right. It I, cannot be that at all. I think there's always this danger that we don't want to seem too different. We don't right. want to seem too out of touch. We don't want to seem irrelevant. When in reality, what we need to do is ask ourselves, are we willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus? Or we, do we identify with the Christ of the cross? Right. Well, and I, I think in our culture, we're coming to a crisis point for the Christian, in Western civilization especially, right. where we – because other parts of the world have already had to do this – where we will have to make a decision. We're going to – Ask ourselves what we believe. Yeah, you you know you mentioned something uh, when we were discussing this beforehand about uh, uh, Indiana Jones, right? Say that to our listeners. Yeah, that, that, I think that's good. You know, the the third Indiana Jones movie was um, um, the Last Crusade, and toward the end of that, they're trying to get the chalice, and there's the evil guys, the bad guys who want the chalice for wrong reasons, and there's good guys who aren't really good guys, but they're good guys in the movie. And Indiana Jones, his father, trying to get the chalice, you know, that caught the blood of right. Christ. And uh, so um, they're having trouble getting to it, and the bad guy shoots Indiana Jones' father, and now he's got to decide if he really believes the chalice will do what they said it was doing. And he makes this statement, and it's really instructed us. He says, it's time to ask yourself what you believe. Um, mm -hmm. in, in it about that time? Mm. It, you know, 
it's not about being cool. It's not about the world thinking we're relevant. It's, a, it's time to ask ourselves, do we identify with the crucified and risen Christ? Christ was rejected of men. Yeah. You know, we identify with Christ. Right. Well, we rejected we of men. Better, we better decide. Well, we're out of time. We've gone way over, but I, I knew that would happen with wrapping up this issue on church history. But I think as we wrap up and, and ask ourselves why it's important to study church history, it's just that. It's time to ask yourself, what do you believe? Right. That, that's where it brings us. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. And after our break, we'll look forward, Lord willing, to being with you again. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us today. You can always visit us on the web at crosstalkpodcast.org. Crosstalk is produced by Vision for Living Ministries, a nonprofit organization. This podcast is a free resource but you can support us financially through our website. For more information on Vision for Living Ministries, visit our website at visionforliving.org, where you will find more great resources. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vision for Living or on Twitter, at V4L. We also love to hear from our listeners. You can email us anytime at info at visionforliving.org. Be sure to join us next week on Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond. Mm-hmm.